Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we looked in earnest at verses 1 and 2. This week, we're going to start with verse 3. Even though some of the information starting in verse 3, we kind of touched on it lightly. All right, today we're going to treat it somewhat as a somewhat as a review in the sense of the verses that we did uh, look at last time, and uh, some of it's going to be new material, of course. You remember last time we talked about how the fingerprints of God are all over this story. The fingerprints of God are all over this story. Two weeks ago, we were looking at this passage or this chapter as if we were imagining ourselves back in school, and it, it was final exam time, and this is Abraham's final exam. All right, so here we're continuing today with. Abraham's final exam. I guess you could say Abraham actually begins his final exam if we start it in verse 3. Because in verses 1 and 2, that was kind of the introduction. This is where God appeared to him. This is when God said, this is what you're to do, gave him the instructions for the final exam. And then now uh, Abraham's response. Somebody mind reading verses 1 and 2 just in case somebody wasn't here last week. They'd be able to hear the, uh, the instruction part of it. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. So some of the things we looked at there, first of all, that we have the inside information that it's a test. Abraham doesn't know it's going to be a test. I mean, he knows it's going to be hard, but he doesn't know this is just a test. And then uh, some of the other things that we looked at there, he's he's to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. This is the son through whom the promises are given. So Abraham's in a weird spot because the promise of God requires that Isaac survive. The promise of God requires that Isaac live. But the command of God is go kill him. Go carry your son. How weird is that? That here he's faced with a situation where he's got this almost contradictory information, right? Um, one of the uh, commentators says about this, the promise of God required that Isaac should live while the command of God demanded that he should die. Abraham was suddenly confronted with the most awesome of problems, a self-contradictory God. Unbelief stumbles over such problems while mature faith waits to see how the distant recesses of the wisdom of God hidden from human reason and understanding will be made known. But the waiting can be excruciating and many people rather than bear the pain simply abandon the faith. And it's, it's not any different than what we might go through. We might go through times where God doesn't make sense. And so what's our response to that? For some people, it's, it's abandoned ship. It's like this didn't work. I tried the God thing. It didn't work. But what does God intend for us? To persevere, to stick to it, to see all the way through, see how God will marvelously provide. So Abraham's moving forward then. We're going to find that out, especially in, starting in verse 3. Somebody mind reading verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering 
and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So here we have Abraham rising early in the morning. He's quick to obey. When God gives him this challenge, he doesn't hesitate. He's getting up early in the morning. He's getting out and he's getting ready and he's, uh, he's quick to obey there. The last time that we saw Abraham getting up early in the morning when he was quick to obey was back in chapter 21, the chapter right before this, when God told him, send away Hagar, send away Ishmael, and he was quick to obey. He did that. He rose early in the morning, and he did what God told him to do. And now, just as he sent Hagar and Ishmael away to the unknown, now he and Isaac are heading off into somewhat of the unknown. All right. That travel time is that travel time must have been excruciating, right? I mean, especially if you're a parent, you can really start to imagine yourself in that situation. And the travel time, we'll look at how far they had to go and how long that must have been. Oh, agonizing, absolutely. Absolutely. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, when it, when it says here that he saddled his donkey, we should not think of this as throwing that leather saddle over your donkey with the stirrups. You know, that's not what's actually going on. That's, a, that's a, from a different era. All right. Basically, they're preparing the donkey to bear uh, a load. They're preparing the donkey, um, equipping the donkey uh, to, to bear a load, like I said. And then it's interesting here that the word for donkey is hamor, and the word for moriah is hamoriah. All right. So here we have an interesting uh, similarity in the sounding of the words for the donkey bearing the burden and the place that they're going. I don't know what to make of that, but it was one of the things that was pointed out as we were reading it. And then regarding taking these two servants, the two young men, these servants, it's kind of weird. They don't do anything. They don't do anything except accompany Abraham and Isaac on this journey and accompany them back. The servants do nothing. They're just simply there, which is kind of strange with the next phrase because it's who's splitting the wood. Abraham. It's Abraham, right? Abraham's the one splitting the wood. I would have thought, okay, I've got some servants. I'll have them split the wood. So for some reason, he's calling his servants to go with him, but he doesn't have them splitting the wood. He himself is the one that's splitting the wood. That's kind of strange. And then arose and went to the place of which God had told him. What was the name of the place that God had told him about? It's in verse 2. Moriah, right. And we looked at that last week and uh, that study that we had regarding the place of Moriah and how it's only named in one other place. And then in verse 4, somebody mind reading verse 4? On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Excellent. On the third day. So how long have they been traveling? How many days? This is the third day they've been traveling. Regarding the number of miles, and Bianca was imagining how far this would have been and how excruciating it might have been, it's 45 to 48 miles, basically, as the crow flies from Beersheba to the place that they're going, that he's going to sacrifice his son. So you can imagine it would take two full or maybe parts of three days. And, in fact, the way that they reckon days, or, or you would count it as three days, even if it took a portion of a day and then a full day the next day and then a portion of the day the third day, you still get to count that as three days. So it's, it's three days, and they're still not there. I mean, it's still a, a distance, all right? It's still off in the distance. So uh, you can imagine that would have been an excruciating journey. And I'm sure his son, Isaac, probably had questions, but he seems to hold his question until, we'll look, uh, until we get a little further. How about verse 5? Somebody am I reading that one? Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Excellent. Thank you, Kevin. Here we have a situation where Abraham is telling the servants, stick around, and we're going to go worship. And the word he uses for worship 
is actually somewhat ambiguous. All right, so it doesn't say, hey, stick around while I go and make a sacrifice, because then there might be this, oh, really? Where's your sacrifice at? Hey, wait a minute. You're going to sacrifice yourself? Oh, you know, no, we're not going to let that happen. I mean, there could have been an intervention of some sort or something. So he uses a rather a different word for worship that's kind of ambiguous, doesn't really disclose exactly what he has in mind. Some commentators wonder, does that mean then he's being deceptive? The writer of Hebrews helps us out in saying no. The writer of Hebrews, you remember we looked at it last week, in chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, Abraham fully believed God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. It appears he thought he was going to have to go through with the sacrifice, but it appears he was fully convinced that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Also, the words that are here, the verbs that you see, you have what? I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come back. Go, worship, and come back. The way that these verbs are written in the original Hebrew, it actually indicates very strong determination. You could even translate it if you wanted to. We are determined to go, we are determined to worship, and we are determined to return. There's a really strong uh, sense in the way that those verbs are written in there. So when Abraham makes this statement then that they're going to come back to the servants, there's three possibilities here. There's three possibilities. Either they are or they aren't. All right. If they're not, if, if Abraham's making that statement and, and he's intentionally deceiving, then he's lying, right? He's a liar. If he's making that statement, but he's delusional, then he's a lunatic, right? Or the third possibility is that maybe they really will be coming back. Maybe there is truth to that statement. All right, so he's either lying or he's a lunatic, or maybe there is really truth there. Josh McDowell wrote a very famous book called More Than a Carpenter, and he bases that book on a statement. Basically, it's this idea. It's very similar to Jesus' statements in the New Testament. When you look at the Gospels and you see the, the statements that Jesus makes, and there's really only three possibilities. When Jesus makes those ridiculously outrageous statements, he's either lying, you know, he's intentionally deceiving people, or he's deceived himself, so he's a lunatic, or there's truth to it. He's Lord. So the possibilities are Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. So here we have something similar, a similar arrangement to that. By the way, if you don't have that book or if you haven't read that book, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, it's a very good book. If you don't have it, I'll get you one and I'll let you read it. It's, it's, it's a really good book. It'll be life-changing if you haven't read it. How about verse 6? Somebody might read in verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So we've got the wood here for the burnt offering. We've got the fire. fire. Where's the fire? Fire in his hand? What is he, Superman? How do you do that? <laughs> this is not to conjure up the idea that he's carrying fire in his hand, uh, it, you know, as would burn you and I, but he's like superhuman or something. No, typically what you would see for something like that is when you would move from place to place, the way that you would preserve your fires, you would often take burning embers or coals from the, from the fire you just left, and you would t- carry those in a clay pot. All right, a clay pot. There's also the possibility it could be an allusion to flint and a stone. All right, so you could take that in a sense. But most of the commentators believe it was a, a pot with the with the coals in it. And then uh, David H. Stern says regarding this passage, the image of Isaac's carrying the wood on which he is to be burned adds enormous power to the story. A midrash relates this to a Roman, parentheses, not Jewish, method of execution that was sometimes used on Jewish martyrs. Quote, it is like a person who carries his cross on his own shoulder. And that's from a Jewish midrash, all right? So David Stern drawing out that something that you and I would say, boy, that sounds kind of like Jesus would bear his own cross. <clears throat> yes, yes, it actually does, doesn't it? 
Another one that we have here regarding Isaac. When you put the wood on Isaac, Isaac, of course, is going to be carrying the wood. This is strange. You would think the donkey would be carrying the wood. But from the point where they get to where they're taking leave of their servants, they're leaving the donkey there as well. And the wood is now transferred onto Isaac's back. How much wood do you need? All right. What are they going to do? You have to ask yourself, what are they going to do to answer the question, how much wood do they need? Abraham knows what they're going to do. Abraham knows that when they get there, the intention is going to be, when you would make a sacrifice, you would take your animal that's ready for slaughter. You would slaughter that animal, you would chop it up, you would put it on this pile of firewood, and you needed enough wood to not just burn itself, but to burn the sacrifice on top of it. Is a chopped up animal easy to ignite? No, you need more wood for that. You need more wood. It's not like kindling. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm messing up your lunches. <laughs> All right, maybe you're not quite done yet. But I, I'm, I'm tr- I, what I'm trying to convey is it's not a small amount of wood. It's not three pieces of firewood. When you go camping at the state parks and, oh, let's go get a bundle of firewood. And it's eight bucks and they give you like eight pieces of wood. It's not like that. It's a lot of wood. You need enough wood to consume the sacrifice you're making, to burn it up. It's a lot of wood. And he's putting it on Isaac's back. So how old is Isaac? He's more than three. <laughs> All right? He's more than three or four or five. If he's carrying this wood, how old is dad, by the way? How old is Abraham in this story? We don't know his exact age, but we know he's over a certain age. What is he over? He's over 100. He's over 100 years old. Do you suppose the boy that can carry enough wood to serve the purpose for which they're going a boy that's strong enough to carry that wood could take a hundred-year-old. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Whatever age he is, if he's able to carry enough wood to accomplish what they're setting out to accomplish, he's probably physically fit enough to take out dad if he gets to the point where he realizes, I don't want to go any farther, right? If he realizes, wait a minute, I'm the sacrifice, he's probably strong enough to say, hundred-year-old dad, I'm not getting on that wood, mm-hmm. unless he's a willing participant. Mm. How about uh, the next part? How about the knife? Let's talk about the knife for a second. (laughs) This knife is actually only used in two other places in our Bible in the Old Testament. And uh, in one of those places, it's used, it's in Judges chapter 19, verse 29. Kind of a macabre story. You don't find this in children's Bibles very often. It's where a guy uses this knife to chop up a body, a human body. I mean, when we're going through the Bible and I'm reading the Bible verse by verse to my kids... You know, I'm like, okay, kids, I'm, I'll tell them. I'm skipping this story. We'll come back to it when you're older. <laughs> you know, because it's not what I want. You know, good night. <laughs> you know, it's going to give them bad dreams. But the knife, the word that's used here in this story is the same that's used over there. It's big enough to hack limbs off. All right? It's substantial. In our English language, all right, a, a meat cleaver might be one way to think of it. Barring a word from another language, a machete. Might be another way to think of it. It's a substantial blade, all right? It's a knife that was typically used to butcher an animal, and it's strong enough to be used to butcher an animal. Again, I'm sorry if you're still eating. <laughs> I hope you're not. Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. Somebody might read this one. But Isaac said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for burnt offering? Excellent. Thank you, Esther. Verse 7 actually records the only spoken words of Isaac in the whole story. It's the only thing he says. And he's going, hey, Dad, <laughs> did we forget something? 
you ever go on a trip and you, you pack it, and as well as you pack, you always forget something. You know, maybe that was a situation. Maybe I'm sure he's just going, hey, Dad, did we forget to pack the lamb? <laughs> did we forget to pack the sacrifice? Uh, should we turn around and go back? I know it was a long way, three days, you know. Uh, uh, he's probably a little concerned by now. Probably wants a little clarification. Probably getting a little worried. Because the neighbors of that time did practice child sacrifice. It was something that was normal for others. And so Isaac's probably in, in a state of concern here. But like I said, he's strong enough to take dad if he wants to. All right. By the way, regarding burnt offerings, there came later, during the time of Moses and we have in Leviticus, we have different types of offerings. But at this time in the history, the burnt offering is the only offering. All right, is pretty much known as the only offering. Uh, one possible exception might be the offering that Cain made. So the burnt offering in Isaac's mind, that's what they're going to do. It also implies that he's familiar with his dad doing this before. Because how would you know what is necessary unless you've seen it before? Let's see, dad's got the big knife. He's got the fire. I've got the wood. Hmm, we're missing something. We're missing the lamb. All right. What does dad say in verse 8? Somebody mind reading that one. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Excellent. Thank you, Levet. The New King James Version puts my son at the beginning of the statement. It's one of the only ones that does that. The version that Levet just read has my son at the end. I would say that seems to be the way it should be. So when Abraham is giving this statement, there's three possible ways that it could be interpreted. Three possible ways that it could be taken. Number one... God, when we get there, God's going to provide us a lamb, all right? And we have the benefit of hindsight being twenty twenty. We know that that's going to turn out to be the case. Unlikely, you probably don't see wild rams out much as you're walking around the hills. I know Chad was telling me a story. He had that actually happen to him. It was a bighorn sheep, I think it was. I, I've never had that happen. And if I was going to go someplace that was a three-day journey, I probably wouldn't want to rely on chance, you know, to just find myself uh, something to sacrifice while I'm out there. You know, I would have brought something with me if I thought that would have been necessary. Uh, so there's there was one possibility that God will actually provide it. All right. So like I said, that when he's saying this statement, when he's giving this response to his son, he's he's making it in faith that God will provide us something to sacrifice when we get there. Another way to take it is God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He speaks it in an ambiguous enough way that you can't really tell. Is he saying God will provide us an offering, my son? Or is he saying God will provide us an offering, my son? As if you're the offering. Telling him straight up. But it's ambiguous enough, like I said, that it's not clear from the language which way to take it. And there's a third way you could take it. There's at least one Bible teacher that I've run across who says that we could also look at it this way. God will provide himself the lamb for the offering. By the way, the word for provide here is yaira or jaira. It actually is translated as see, as in God will see to it. All right, God will provide or God will see to it. God will make it happen. God will supply all right, God will, God will see to it. So when you hear Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, provide, see, Jehovah Jireh, this is the word right here. All right, how about verse 9? Somebody mind reading verse 9? When they reached the place God has told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. 
bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Excellent. Thank you very much. So here we have Abraham. He's building the altar. He's more than 100 years old. Isaac's probably at the height of his concern right now. But like I said, he's strong enough to take his dad. It seems like Isaac must know that he's the sacrificial victim. If at no other place, when he gets bound. All right? When he gets bound. By the way, that word bound there does not appear anywhere else. Anywhere else in our Bible, in our Old Testament, in the Tanakh. It appears outside the Bible. It's the word that you would use to describe binding the front legs and the back legs of your sacrifice. All right? So that's the only other place that we have it. It's not in the Bible anywhere else, but it's from outside the Bible from a later period. He's bound his son to be the sacrifice. If his son, whatever age he is, and I, again, we talked about the possible ages, the range of ages. The word that's used for him is lad. All right? It's a boy. We don't know how old. It's at least old enough to carry that wood. All right? Uh, Jewish tradition has him up to 37. So anywhere I would propose from a teenager to the age of 37, he's not fighting his dad. He's a willing participant. He's a willing participant in his own sacrifice. That says something about Isaac. It's a test of Abraham, but I think Isaac should get some kudos for a supporting role here. (laughs) All right? Because that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. New King James Version Study Bible Note says, At this point, Isaac knew he was the sacrificial victim. Surely he could have run away from his aged father, yet like the Savior on an even darker day, he was willing to do his father's will. Verse 10, somebody mind reading that one? Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Excellent, thank you. And we talked about that knife. It's no insignificant instrument that's being used here. Verse 11, somebody mind reading that one? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. Excellent, thank you, Mike. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Called to him from heaven, it can be translated as well as spoken a loud voice. All right, I bet. You know what? If I was in that situation, I would need the loudest voice you could give me because I'm going to be pretty stirred up about what's going on right there. Spoke to him in a loud voice or called to him from heaven. How many times does he call his name? He calls his name twice, right? Remember how we talked about that earlier? At the start of the test, he only called his name once. Abraham had shown by that point that he was able to hear God's voice. He was listening and paying attention and was able to discern God's voice. Are we in the place that we can hear God's voice where he only has to call our name once? Are we in a place that we could say, yes, Lord, what would you have of me? I mean, because that was the response. Remember that early on in the test? Hey, Abraham. Yes, Lord, here I am. Right? And then here we have the same response here, but he has to be called twice. I don't know if he had to be or if it was just beneficial and, you know, let's cover all the bases by calling his name twice. Calls his name twice, and he calls his name twice as the action is just about to be fulfilled, as it's just about at the end. So is this a little too late or is this on time? God's not a moment too late, but it's also not a moment too early, is he? Sometimes in our lives we don't go this far. Right? Sometimes in our lives we abandon what God is doing in our lives before the moment of truth, before the moment of provision. God wants to see us. Are we all in? Are we willing to obey? Are we willing to follow his directives even to the end? And I'm not talking about sacrificing children. All right, Of course I'm not. But I'm talking about what would God ask of you that's your test? And are you willing to continue down that road that doesn't make any sense? Are you willing to continue down that road that you expect is going to lead to despair? Are you able and willing to continue down that road that you think this is the end of all your dreams and hopes when maybe God's got something for you at that last moment and you don't ever find out because you don't continue down that road? That's what God would be asking of us. Trust in me, right? Remember all these tests. We looked at all the tests two weeks ago. And what was the ultimate test? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? 
and over and over again, each day that we wake up, it's as if God would whisper into your ear and in mine, do you trust me? Do you trust me with your life today? Do you trust me with your aspirations? Do you trust me with your hopes? Do you trust me with your future? Do you trust me? And like Abraham, we should be in a place where we say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. Somebody might reading this soon. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. We talked about child sacrifice and we've got to at least touch on it right here. John Hartley says, since this narrative is at the heart of the biblical message, it is important to reflect on its teaching. It clearly and unequivocally teaches that Yahweh, the only God, never accepts human sacrifice. If God did not accept the sacrifice of Isaac, the first child of promise, surely no other sacrifice of a child would be acceptable to him. Given the popularity of child sacrifice in some cultures close to Israel, this was a vital truth for Israel to learn. Kenneth Matthews ends up saying, The angel's explanation, now I know, is an admission that the ordeal was a test, a discovery of Abraham's depth of loyalty. The text reads the singular pronoun you, referring to Abraham alone, indicating that despite what commendation might be inferred from Isaac's obedience, it is Abraham who is the object of the test. So for whose benefit was it then? I mean, when God says, now I know, did God not know before? Was God in a place where he's like, yeah, I don't know how Abraham's going to turn out, how this test is going to turn out. Is that the God we know? No. There's a few attributes of God that we learn from as we read through the scriptures and as you create a composite picture of, of the Lord. And the Lord of the scriptures, one of the things that you find out is that he's omniscient. Omniscient means all, omni, all, and shint is science or knowledge, all right? So he's all-knowing. God is all-knowing. So if he's all-knowing, why would he need to say, now I know that you fear God? There's some other passages that are similar to this. One of the other passages is, if you remember, the uh, the flood story, all right? The flood story, and there you had the rainbow. God places a rainbow in the, in the sky, and he says, this is to remind me not to destroy you guys again. Does God need reminders? No, he doesn't need reminders. How about the Tower of Babel story? And God says, you know what? Let's go down there and see what they're doing, as if he doesn't know, right? And, and you find out, of course he knows, but it, it's to convey for us something that we would resonate with, that we would understand. Another place that you find that is in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, where God says, you know, let's go down there and see if it's as wicked as the reports that are coming up to me. Does God really not know how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah is? No, absolutely he knows. Turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Let's talk about the knowledge of God for a moment. Would somebody mind reading that one? Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. For whose benefit then was the test? Abraham. With my kids, my kids are homeschooled, and so it's me and it's my wife who administer the tests, right? And when we administer the test to our children, it's not for my benefit. All right? I really, I've got fractions. I'm good with fractions. I don't need fractions anymore. All right? I give them a test because they need to learn their fractions. Right? In this situation, for whose benefit is it? It's Abraham's benefit. Right? 
Abraham is the one that needed to know whether he could go through it or not, whether he trusted God completely or not. And there's somebody else that actually benefited from it too. Who was the other Ben? Isaac. Imagine the perspective you have in Isaac's shoes, all right? As you're looking up, (laughs) as you're laying down, looking up, and you see that knife. And you know how this is supposed to end, and you survive. The test is to benefit Abraham first and foremost, but there's also a benefit for Isaac. And what is the benefit? My dad loves the Lord more than he loves me. The relationship, the priorities are right. Because anytime we love anything more than God, we're whacked. It's out of order. The priority isn't right. We need to love God more than any other person, more than any other relationship. Our relationship with God needs to be foundational, needs to be priority, and everything else ordered after that. And in this situation, Isaac got to see, for my dad, he loves God more than he loves me. And that's something that's going to be impressed upon him as he goes through his life and hopefully passed down for generation to generation. So they both ended up benefiting from it. But Abraham ended up being the one that was primarily tested. There's an interesting verse, too, that talks about Abraham's test and the part of the benefit that he received. It's in James. The book of James, chapter 2, verse 22, it says that Abraham's faith was perfected by this test. As if his faith was less than perfect before. As if his faith matured fully as a result of this test. It's a test I hope none of us would ever have to go through. And I can assure you God's not going to ask you to try to sacrifice your kids. All right? But you're going to have something similar, a different test. You're going to have a test that's going to make you or break you in the sense of your faith. And if you persevere with God, if you stick with God, it's going to be hard, but your faith is going to be healthier as a result. You're going to mature in your faith. It's about maturing us. God has tests for us. Remember the pruning illustration? Every branch that does not bear fruit, he cuts off. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes from John chapter 15. He prunes. None of us want to go through the pruning process. We don't want that blade to get anywhere near us. But he prunes us, cutting the things off that are holding us back from a mature faith. He wants to see us mature in our faith. All right, verse 13. Somebody mind reading verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. I bet if you're uh, Isaac at this point, you're pretty relieved. (laughs) I bet if you're Abraham at this point, you're pretty relieved. Do you suppose he expected the ram was just going to show up in a thicket? It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like he was willing to go through with his part of the test, Abraham. It sounded like Isaac was willing to go through his part of the test in being the sacrifice. But all of a sudden, there's a ram. Right after the voice of the Lord speaking loudly from heaven, there's a ram caught in a thicket right next, right near them, it sounds like. right? And that becomes the substitution. That becomes the sacrifice in Isaac's place. Regarding the ram there, if you remember back, I don't know if you can remember this far back, but week number four. Week number four of our Genesis study. We're in what? We're in week 74. So this was 70 lessons ago. All right. And one of the things that we looked at in that week was Aleph Tav. Do you guys remember this? All right. Let me write this on the board. Aleph Tav. All right. Strange, right? It's not in English, is it? It's another language. What language is it? It's in Hebrew, right? It's in Hebrew. What is the Aleph Tav? 
Anybody remember from that study a long time ago? The Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Tav is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All right? It's the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. What would it be in Greek? The Alpha and Omega, right? The Alpha and Omega. Why am I bringing this up? Because in Revelation, we find a correlation. We have three different passages from the book of Revelation that talk about Jesus being identified as the Alpha and Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha. The last letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega. When he says, I'm the first and the last, I'm the beginning and the end, I'm the Alpha and Omega, he's saying, I'm the first letter of your alphabet, I'm the last letter of your alphabet. But that's in Greek. That's the language of the New Testament. What would he be saying if he was speaking Hebrew? He would be saying, I am the olive from the top. Right? So the interesting thing, the reason I bring this up is because if you look at your Bibles, you have something that's not translated in that verse. In verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took, untranslated word, olive tov. The ram. Took Aleph Tav, the ram. It's not, you, you don't see Aleph Tav in your English translation. It's not there. Because Aleph Tav shows up in a lot of different places in the Tanakh, and it's just not translated. There's, there's no word for it. It's there, all right? And there's all kinds of discussions. What is this? What does this mean? I just think it's neat, because it seems to be showing up in places that are really strong in saying, it's as if you could put Jesus right there. It's as if Yeshua is showing up right there. Well, that's kind of weird. It shows up in weird places. Some of them pretty important places. Here's one of those really important places. So Abraham went and took Tav, the ram, and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. When the ram shows up here, where's the lamb at? Remember his son said, hey, where's the lamb? And here we have, we don't have a lamb, we have a ram. God didn't provide a lamb. So Ray Comfort says, this wasn't a reference to verse 13 because God didn't provide a lamb in this incident. It's an obvious reference to the lamb of God, the Messiah. He makes a note of John 1, 36. John chapter 1, verse 36. John the Baptist is out in the Jordan River area, and Jesus is coming up to him. And what does John say? He announces to the crowd an exclamation, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It's as if when Isaac says, Dad, where's, where's the Lamb? And Isaac says, God will provide himself the Lamb. It's as if John the Baptist tells us, Behold, the Lamb. Right? Where's the lamb? Well, God will provide. And John the Baptist says, there he is. He's right there. By the way, the ram, as an animal, as a single animal, can sometimes be used to indicate the entire sacrificial system. All right. So why would he choose a ram here and not a lamb? Why did God have a ram show up and not the lamb? All right. It could be because sometimes you'll find in your Bibles, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, in Micah chapter 6, verse 7, you have the ram being representative of the entire sacrificial system. All right. And what do we find out from this passage about the entire sacrificial system? Substitution. Substitution. It's provided as a substitute. Some people see that this ram caught in the thicket, all right, in the thicket. Some people see, oh, that's kind of like Jesus with the crown of thorns. Some people see that. John 8.56 is a strange passage. Let's look at John 8.56. Jesus is in an argument with the religious leaders of the day. And in 56, we have this strange little comment taken right out of this argument. And he says this. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. When did that happen? Here's Jesus talking to, talking to the religious leaders and saying, your father Abraham, he looked forward to my day, right? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. 
So sometime in Abraham's life, he saw the Lord saw that day. What? Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. When did that happen? Most of your commentators say right here. When Abraham turned and saw the, the ram caught in the thicket. Abraham rejoiced to see that. What is Yeshua, what is Jesus saying then right then? That was me. Okay, wait, ah, that's ridiculous. That couldn't be the case. How about this? Read the next verse. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. What is that a reference to? That's a reference to Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. Moses, burning bush. Who speaks to him out of the bush? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the same phrase that's used in this passage right here. Who is it that stops Abraham's hand with the knife? The angel of the Lord. Jesus is saying, there I was there. And there I was there. And he's showing up all over the place. <laughs> was Jesus just a man? No, 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 no. No, no, no. He wasn't. All right, going back. Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. All right, we're going to probably end with this verse. Somebody mind reading chapter 22, verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. There, that phrase, the Lord will provide, that's Jehovah Jireh. And as it is said to this day in the Mount of the Lord, that phrase, Mount of the Lord, you find that in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. You find that in Micah chapter 4, verse 2. And you find that in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 3. And it's the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. And the Temple Mount. All right. Let's go ahead and end with that. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word. We thank you for the complexities and the different passages that we could look at, and they lead to other passages that lead to other passages. And the overall picture that we're getting is just marvelous. This is not the creation of man. This is not some people sat down and thought they had a great idea for a story and started to write, and then they merged them together. Hey, and it looks like it fits. No, this is people moved by the Holy Spirit. This is people being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words down. And even every single word in different languages, it all comes together and paints a clear picture. You are Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you know everything from the beginning to the end. Thank you, Lord, that you oversee everything, that you even orchestrate. Thank you, Lord, that you have patience with us. Because if you see everything, then you see our hearts. And Lord, our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. How it is that you have patience with us is a mystery. But we pray, God, that you would help us to submit ourselves to you, to be all in for you, to follow your leading and help us, Lord, to grow and mature in our faith, just as Abraham matured in his faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. You guys have a great week.